Right, so you guys ready to get into this here? This is a, a fun study. It's a great story. Who doesn't love a love story, right? And that's what we've got before us. So all the guys that are going, yes, exactly. Love a love story. Well, that's what we have before us here, and it is an um, exciting, uh, wonderful study together here. And we've been, as we've been doing our Wednesday series, going through, you know, the Bible from 30,000 feet, we've been covering books of 20 plus chapters in one night. We get to slow it down a little bit here, just cover four chapters tonight. So we get to take our time a little bit more um, in, in going through this. Now, like I said, the book of Ruth is just a beautiful story, but it's an interesting story because it's set upon the black backdrop of what we've been seeing in the book of Judges, as we saw last Wednesday. We went through the whole book of Judges last Wednesday, and of course, you see that this is not a lot of good that was going on during the book of Judges. In fact, the last verse of Judges says this, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not a, a, a pretty picture that we see happening through the book of Judges, and yet in now the midst of that whole backdrop of Judges, we have this incredible, beautiful story of Ruth that's taking place here during that time. Scroggy said this, after reading Judges, Ruth is like a lily in a stagnant pond. Here, instead of unfaithfulness is loyalty, and instead of immorality is purity. Here, instead of battlefields are harvest fields, and instead of the warrior's shout is the harvester's song. Warren Wiersbe also said, it seems incredible that this beautiful love story could occur during the dark days of the judges, but such is the grace of God. We are living in trying days today, yet God is at work in his world, getting a bride for his son and accomplishing his eternal purposes. Never permit the bad news of man's sin to rob you of the good news of God's love and grace. Amen to that. So there's a lot of interesting, neat kind of features to this book here. Ruth is the only Old Testament named, or only Old Testament book named after an ancestor of Jesus. Think about that. Of all the books we have in the Old Testament, 39 of them, there's only one here that's named after an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And this book is the only one named after a non-Jew and one of only two in the entire Bible that's named after a woman. What's the other one? Oh, there you go. Okay. That was an easy one for you guys. Esther. So, this becomes really an important book that links us now from the dark period of the judges to what God has planned for his people under the rule of King David. It provides the glimmer of hope and assurance that God is at work behind the scenes as we've been seeing this, this providence of God that this video kind of illustrated for us. Now, interestingly, both books that are named after woman has this as its theme. Both Ruth and Esther have at its very theme uh, the very providence of God. Both books don't mention God. Uh, uh, Esther doesn't mention God at all. Ruth very seldomly, only by behalf of the, the, the characters there. But it's all about just the work of God that's unfolding in the midst of human affairs. Ruth, a Gentile who marries a prominent Jew. And then you got Esther, who's a Jew that marries a prominent Gentile they were in that specific place to carry out God's providential purposes. So interesting. Now, one of the key things that we're going to see in this book is the mention of Boaz as a close relative to Naomi, and now going to be a close relative to, to Ruth. That word in Hebrew is goel, and it means kinsman redeemer. Redemption, you see, is only possible through a kinsman redeemer. J. Vernon McGee said this, since only God could redeem, it was necessary for him to become that person. Boaz then furnishes the only figure for the kinsman redeemer aspect of redemption, which is so essential for any proper theory of the atonement. This little book of Ruth comes down to our level and tells the commonplace story of a couple who love each other. They were ordinary folk, average folk, and their love story is a mirror in which we can see the divine love of a savior for you and for me, as we proceed in the book of Ruth, we see this wonderful love story unfold before us. That's what we get to look at as we dissect and dive into this book a little bit more deeper here. We begin to see this incredible love story uh, of Boaz and Ruth, and it becomes a very fitting picture, as we'll 
illustrate and draw out from this of the, the picture of Jesus that's coming for a Gentile bride, the church, gathers, gathers that church for himself. Here's the outline we're gonna be seeing, divided up into four neat chapters here. First of all, chapter one, Ruth's sorrow, then Ruth's service in chapter two, Ruth's surrender in chapter three, and Ruth's salvation in chapter four. Now, the author is not mentioned. We don't really know who the author is. Many believe it's Samuel, uh, who also many believe wrote the book of Judges. And so it's very possible that Samuel's the writer of Ruth and uh, would have been written near the beginning of of David's reign. And we know Samuel was instrumental in, again, anointing David to be the, the, the king there in Israel. Well, let's look at this here. Chapter one, verse one. Here's what we read. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, they took wives of the woman of Moab. The name of the, of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So as we discussed, this is all taking place during the time of the judges when people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, as we see at the end of the book of Judges. They're not seeking to honor God at all here. And so what do we see? The land is hit with a famine. This is the kinds of things that God said would happen if they would walk in, in disobedience and rebellion to God, that he would hold back rain, that, that they wouldn't be able to have their crops grow, that there would be famines that would come. And so here we begin to see the consequences of their actions unfolding. And so Ruth begins to paint that. The story of Ruth paints that picture for us. And so Elimelech, he takes Naomi and he takes his two sons over to, to Moab. Now, the name Elimelech means my God is king, all right? Yet he's not really living this way. He's not really living as though, God, you're my king, I'm following you, because he's making a decision here based on what he thinks he needs, not based on what God has called him to do. He's deciding to move his family over to Moab, which is kind of enemy territory, outside of the land that God had given to his people. And so he's making decisions now to move in a place that's not really a decision that's based on trusting the Lord. One commentator said he lost his life seeking his livelihood and he found a grave where he sought a home. You see, when we're pursuing our own interests over God's, then, then I think we're gonna run into a lot of problems. And that's kind of what Elimelech here in his life is sort of pointing out for us. His son's names are also interesting. Malon means sick and Kilion means pining or wasting away. That's a couple great names to give your sons, right? I'm gonna name you sickly and I'm gonna name you wasting away. I mean, just like great, you know, real great inspiration there. These evidently weren't very healthy boys or this is a, a condition that this family was feeling when they were born here. But he takes the sons over now with Naomi and they end up marrying Moabite woman. Again, this is not what God has instructed them to do. Do you remember back when, when, um, Balak, king of Moab, was hiring Balaam to curse Israel when they were passing through. And so Balaam can't curse him, but what he does say is, go ahead and take your daughters and have them marry their sons. And this is gonna cause great consequence and retribution of God, judgment of God, right? And so now Elimelech is doing what caused a great curse upon the people one time marrying Moabite woman. Now he's having his children marry Moabite woman. So poor Naomi you know, the, well, the, the boys end up dying as we, we read there. And so poor Naomi, she survives her husband and her children and is now left with two daughters-in-law in a foreign place. And she's at risk now of really losing everything with no males in her life to carry on the family inheritance, right? She's kind of really at a difficult point right now. Now, many people see in Elimelech this poor decision that cost everything in the natural things seemed lean for him, but we always need to trust in the Lord in those times because the worst that we can experience with God is still always better than the best that we'll experience with the enemy, right? He's sitting in Israel, famine, things aren't looking good. I'm gonna go over to Moab outside of God's will. And it costed him everything. 
The worst that we could ever experience with God will always be better than the best we'll ever have with the enemy. So despite all these decisions and actions, we still see God who is ruling in human affairs and, and more so overruling in human affairs. That's the beauty of all this is that though there's bad decisions being made, there's God who is ruling in and even overruling in human affairs and working out his purposes in the midst of all this. I love that. So in verse six, we begin to see things changing. Look at verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So Naomi hears now that the Lord's goodness has been shown to his people, but she's not receiving or benefiting from this because they've moved themselves outside of God's blessing. Do you see that here? God comes and he reveals himself, he visits them and he blesses them, but she's not a beneficiary of this because she's living kind of outside of God's will right now. There's a lot of times where we are missing out on what God has for us because we have stepped outside of what God has ordained for us. But God's a God of grace and in the midst of their affliction, God gets Naomi's attention here and her mind now is upon returning back to her homeland. Look at what we read there, verse seven. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each to her mother's house. The, Lord's de- uh, the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Then they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, the laws uh, in Israel this time was that if a woman became a widow without having a child, the husband's brother would then have a child with her. That's gonna be important and instrumental as we move along in the story. But what Naomi is saying here is that, listen, I'm too old. I'm not gonna have any more children. And, and even if by a miracle I was to have children, Orpah and Ruth, would you wait till they were old enough for you to marry and have children with so that you can continue on with the family? No, it doesn't make sense, Naomi is saying to them. So go ahead and return back to your home, basically, is the, the instruction she's giving them, the encouragement she's telling them. But so we see Orpah, she returns back. She's like, yeah, okay, I don't see much for me here staying with you. So she returns back. Her name, Orpah, means neck of an animal or gazelle, all right? So she's kind of like one that's sort of, you know, hopping around to whatever's gonna kind of work or fit, jumping around different options and opportunities, kind of unsettled, she moves on. But Ruth, her name means beauty or friendship. And that's really what we begin to see unfolding here with Ruth is that she has this loyalty, this commitment, and she gives one of the greatest declarations of commitment here in the next few verses. Look at that in verse 15. But Ruth said, look, or sorry, and, and Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to, your, to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she, Naomi, saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. That wasn't that she kind of, you know, started giving her the cold shoulder. No, she just stopped arguing. It's like, okay, your mind's made up. I'm not going to try to convince you any longer. You're coming with me. Okay, let's do this. But look at that great declaration that Ruth gives now. To, to Naomi here, basically saying, listen, where you go, I'm gonna go. Where you make your home, I'm gonna make my home. Your people are gonna be my people now. Your God is gonna be my God. She's basically saying, I'm gonna give up everything now 
and I'm gonna continue on with you. She's not just giving up a former residence, she's giving up her former life. She's laying everything down just to kind of continue on with Naomi to be a support to her and come alongside her in this. Why was Ruth ready to make such a commitment? Why was Ruth ready to give up everything to continue on with Naomi? May I suggest it's because perhaps she witnessed something in Naomi in the way that she endured or faced or handled all the tragedy that befell her. She probably hadn't seen that in any other person to have that kind of hope or resolve to trust the Lord in the midst of all the tragedy. Because Naomi went through great adversity, yet she handled things so differently than the culture of Moab would have. Naomi had a different God and a different resolve because of who God is. And I think that directly and greatly impacted Ruth. You know, sometimes I think God's gonna allow us to go through things in our lives so that we can simply showcase the grace and the strength of God that helps us bear up under those difficulties that we face in a way that the world can look on and say, what gives? How are you able to handle that, go through that with such a a peace and a comfort? And it becomes opportunity for us to showcase the great God, the God of all comfort, the God of all grace, where his grace is sufficient, where his strength is made perfect in our weakness. There are opportunities to lead people to Jesus. And that may be what is leading Ruth along here. We know it's God at the helm of it all, that God is the one that's directing all these things, but she saw something in Naomi, I believe, that caused her to say, I wanna have that. So Ruth is ready to give up all and follow Naomi to a new land and to a new people. Look at verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them and the woman said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, Naomi's name meant pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. And it's been that way sitting in, in, in Bethlehem, the, the house of bread with Elimelech, my God is king, in the land of Judah, which means praise. Things were good until they left, thinking that it would be better on the other side. And it wasn't. And now she wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. But you see, that name is not gonna stand. God's gonna be a God that's gonna melt her heart with his grace. And she's gonna come to see that life with God really is Naomi. It's pleasant. She's not gonna be referred to Mara at all through this story. Her name, Naomi, is gonna stand because she's gonna see how pleasant it is when we, again, align ourselves with the Lord and we put our trust in him. And notice at the end of that chapter, there's a small little mention that they came to Bethlehem. That's gonna be important, as we'll see. But it's at the beginning of barley harvest. You see, I love the way that God is just orchestrating all this and leading the time that this is very important as we're gonna see because this is gonna play a, a, a very integral part in just kind of the, the, the context of this story that's gonna unfold here. Because of this, you see, though this happened at, at Barley Harvest, this story is read by rabbis during Pentecost. It's read by the Jews and Pentecost becomes the birthday of the church, Right? That's when the church really came into existence there on the day of Pentecost as the people were sitting in the upper room and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And how fitting that this story is read during Pentecost because this is the gathering here of a Gentile bride being received by a Jewish kinsman redeemer just as the church was brought together by a Jewish Messiah that brought deliverance and and saving for us and has brought us in as his bride, just as this story is gonna depict for us so well. And so chapter two introduces us to this kinsman redeemer now. His name is Boaz. Look at chapter two, verse one. It says, there was a relative of Naomi's husband 
a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name is Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, verse seven. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So, very interesting here. But take note as we read in, in, in verse 1. Elamel, now he left this land of Israel because of a famine, right? He left that area thinking that it would wipe him out. And yet, here's a family member that stayed and wasn't wiped out. In fact, it says in verse 1 that, that Boaz was a man of great wealth. He wasn't hurt or hit hard by the famine, right? He's not wiped out. God took care of him. How we have to be led by faith and not by fear. Elimelech, I think, was acting by fear, looking to just simply, you know, take care of his own fleshly desires to some extent. And yet back in the land, his own family is still doing well. So Ruth comes into this new territory and she wants to get busy getting some food and providing for her and Naomi, right? So she's like, let me go out to the fields. I'm going to glean some of the, the, the leftovers, basically. She's ready to get out in the fields and begin to pick up the things that have been left behind. And that was normal and lawful, right? That was kind of like God's welfare system that he had built into the Levitical law. It says in, Le- in Leviticus 19, verse 9, 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So God had this built in. Listen, when you're out there and you're kind of reaping the harvest, just don't go crazy through it, you know? Don't have to pick everything apart and make sure you get everything. Leave some of it. And let the strangers, even the foreigners, come into the poor and come in and help themselves to some of the leftovers so that they can be taken care of. And so Ruth, in saying to Naomi, I'm going to go out in the field, I'm going to glean after the reapers, that was totally normal. She's not trying to, you know, uh, steal anything here and try to just provide for her and Naomi. No, she's doing the right thing here, the the lawful thing. And I love what we read in verse 3, right, of chapter 2, that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, though we're introduced to Boaz in in verse 1, Ruth isn't going out looking for him or really even aware of him. She's not familiar with Boaz. She doesn't know who Boaz is. She's not trying to find Boaz. She's just out trying to provide food for her and Naomi. But now she happens to come to his field. What a coincidence, right? Not at all, right? Not, not in the Lord's economy, right? The Lord is not about coincidence. This is God's wonderful providential leading. The Jewish rabbis would say that coincidence is not a kosher word. And I'd have to agree, right? In the Lord's economy, this is not the way that things work. We have to think of it some, oh, that's so odd. What a coincidence that that happened, right? That's not the case here. So Boaz comes in verse four, and he's that picture of our Savior, our Redeemer. And his message is the heart of Jesus. And notice he comes with this you know, great relationship with his workers. There's kindness. He's seeking to bless them, it says. And it's interesting that a servant in verse five to six there, he starts speaking to a servant. Servant isn't mentioned by name. He remains anonymous in this story. Just as when Abraham sent his servant to get a bride for Isaac in Genesis chapter 24, just as the Holy Spirit has been sent to gather a bride for Christ and make Jesus' name known, He's not trying to elevate himself. He wants to testify of Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 26 tells us. So here this servant, kind of this, again, picture the Holy Spirit remaining anonymous, doing that work in leading the bride to to, to Boaz. And all the while, 
that Ruth is gathering in the fields. Notice that, that she's being watched. In verse 7, the guy's very detailed. Well, she's been working from morning until now, though she rested just a little while in the house, took a little coffee break, and that's okay. She was on a 15. I made sure she held that. I mean, he's watchful. He's like aware of what's going on, right? So too, as we go through this world, you know, as aliens and foreigners, do we ever think that, and people are watching us, especially as they find out, hey, that's a Christian. That's a follower of Christ there. What are they really like? What are they really all about? Are they really any different than me? People are watching. People are taking note. We may not think so, but they are. Let's be sure that our conduct is worthy of the one that we serve and that we are, again, being that witness of Jesus in, in all settings, in all circumstances. Well, reading on here, verse eight of chapter two, then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a, fo a foreigner? Verse 11, and Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Boaz now, I mean, he just begins to extend grace to Ruth. At this point, you know, we don't see any sort of romance budding. Remember, Ruth has been working on the field all day. She hasn't been, ha hasn't been primed or, or primped at all. She's not coming in in all her glory. I mean, he's just like, there's, there's no, you know, total fireworks going off here. He's just dealing with her in kindness as Boaz exudes in, in all these situations. And, and this is simply Boaz, just in his kindness, offering her a placement and protection and provision. A place out in the field to work, protection for her, and, and provision as well. I love that. Just, you know, taking care of her, desiring to be gracious to her. And then in verse 14, I mean, it, it goes on to say, now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So Boaz now takes his favor and grace upon Ruth even further. I mean, he's already just showing great kindness. And now he just like goes even that extra mile in just wanting to bless her. He invites Ruth to his table, right? This foreigner becomes like one of them. And notice the items that are at the table, bread and vinegar or wine, you could say. Bread and wine, speaking of communion, this perhaps where the, the romance began to blossom a little. It would have been enough just to invite her in, but he invites her in to share a meal with him. This is amazing grace and love that we see. And it's this way for us as we come to the Lord's table in communion, isn't it, right? Because as we come to the Lord's table in communion, we take the, the bread and the, and the cup and we begin to just think about and meditate upon what Jesus has done for us and the great love and grace that has been shown to us by his sacrifice. It just draws us into a deeper relationship and, and, and it just grows our love for the Lord as we look to him and what he's done for us. And as Ruth is finding out, the ground was level at the cross. We're all sinners saved by grace. Though she's a Moabite, a foreigner, she's invited and she's sitting, you know, on level ground there at the table with the others. And now Boaz is wanting to bless her even more abundantly. She didn't have to pick the leftover. She could take from the best as Boaz would have grain fall purposely for her. And that's just his goodness in action, isn't it? And that's what God loves to do for his people, isn't it? Just pour out his blessing upon them. And again, as we're following in line with what God has for us and seeking just to follow him, that's the path that we're gonna experience the blessings just falling down before us.
And so Ruth returns to Naomi with an ephah of barley. An ephah was about a five and a half gallon tub of barley here. Now that's pretty significant. It's about a day's wage, all right? So it's a significant amount for a foreign girl like Ruth, who's just been out gleaning, picking the leftovers. So that amount being brought to Naomi, you can understand her question in verse 19 when she says, where have you gleaned today? Naomi's like, whoa, where have you been gleaning? Have you been gleaning out of the, the harvester's bags, like right behind, just picking right out of their bag? Or what's going on here, right? I mean, you've taken in a lot here. And Ruth points out, well, I've been working in this man's field. His name is Boaz. And at this point, again, Ruth is not aware of this special relationship between Boaz and Naomi. So Naomi begins to connect the dots. Look at verse 20. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabite said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young woman of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So Naomi in verse 20 says, listen, this is one of our close relatives. This is key. This is important. This is this is huge. And again, we begin to see how wonderful it is that God brings them back to the land at just a time when it's harvest time, people are out in their fields, and he leads and directs Ruth to this person's field that she doesn't have any connection or understanding of. She meets this man, Boaz. He takes notice of her. He invites her in, he begins to bless her. Ruth returns home and shares with Naomi, and suddenly it's like, ah, you just see the Lord's hand directing all of these things together. And Naomi realizes this is our close relative. In the, in the Hebrew, it's the word goel. It means his kinsman redeemer. Suddenly there was hope in a time of uncertainty. Now this idea of a, of a redeemer was explained back in Leviticus chapter 25. And it said there that every 50th year, which was the year of Jubilee, land was given back to its original owners. Slaves would be set free. But if land had been sold, to a, uh, sold due to poverty, well, it could be bought back even before that year of Jubilee by a kinsman redeemer, by this goella, a close relative of that one that was in debt. And this is what Jesus did for us, Right? We were in poverty due to our sin. We had nothing. We couldn't do anything to get ourselves out of debt for that. But Jesus paid the price that we couldn't so that he could redeem us, set us free, deliver us. So now that Naomi starts to see what God is doing, well, she starts doing a little matchmaking of herself. Look at this in chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, Ruth says to Naomi, all that you say to me, I will do. Again, just great submission on the part of Ruth, great surrender there that she's willing just to follow in this. Now, in this day, like I said before, being a widow would be a real strain. Being a widow without children was kind of really seen as even a curse. People look down on you and think, oh, what have you done that here you are, you know, no husband, no children, because really, if you didn't have any children, well, uh, they were basically like your pension plan in that day, right? And so it was very important that you would have kids because they would be the ones that would be supplying that support for you. Naomi wants to provide some security for her. And Ruth's pension plan is B-O-A-Z, right? It's Boaz. This is what's gonna help Ruth and Naomi out for this here. So Naomi reminds Ruth of Boaz's relationship to her that it's, 
that it's his role to really help her out. Now, again, according to Levitical law, the role of the goel or the kinsman redeemer was, first of all, to buy a fellow Israelite, a relative out of slavery, to avenge a slain family member, making sure the murders uh, answered to the crime. Thirdly, it was to buy back land that was sold by a family member. And fourthly, it was to marry a brother's wife who was left widowed and childless and have a child with her to carry on the family name. That's why, again, Naomi was saying to both Orpah and Ruth at the beginning, go back home. I don't have any more children. I'm not going to have any. I can't help you now and supply the things that you need. Now, a kinsman redeemer was to provide for that, to carry on the family name and provide that security and help for that widow. So Ruth is willing to accept this mission, right? Here's your mission if you choose to accept it. And that's what is kind of being given to Ruth right now. And she says, all that you say to me, I will do. And as strange as all this sounds to us, right? Ruth is simply claiming a right that is available to her in this day. She could expect Boaz to step in as her kinsman redeemer. Nevertheless, she doesn't come forcibly. She doesn't come demanding. She comes humbly and requesting before him. So, we understand Boaz is at the threshing floor, right? In this day, men would go to the threshing floor, usually at the top of a hill, right? And they would thresh their grain in the late afternoon and into the evening when the, when the night winds would blow. They would thresh their grain until the uh, wind would die down. They'd oftentimes uh, step on it, move around, sometimes have oxen, you know, trample over the grain and break it all apart from the stalks. And they'd take it, throw it up into the air and, and the wind would come and blow all the chaff away from the grain, and then they would celebrate God's goodness, right? Uh, into the evening, as the winds died down, they would just celebrate God's goodness and provision for them, and then they'd fall asleep there at the threshing floor next to the grain to protect their harvest. So this is what's going on now as Ruth comes in to make her move, all right? Look at verse six, this is where it gets fun. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her, and after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So that's again, like we see, right? They would reap until the winds would kind of die down. Then they'd just sort of celebrate. They would have a little party and then they'd fall asleep right there to protect their grain. He's falling asleep at the, at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly. Ruth comes. She uncovers his feet and lays down. Verse eight. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing for you are a close relative. Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you request. For all the people in my town know that you are a virtuous woman now it is true that I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens right now at this point, right? But look at that in verse 10. We, we begin, now this is, let me just back up a little bit here too, because this is kind of a little bit weird, you know, uncovers feet, lay down his feet, you know. Now, this is not Ruth coming and, you know, kind of, overstepping her bounds or, you know, being flirtatious and, you know, kind of trying to, you know, stir up Boaz by any means. She uncovers his feet. She just lies down at the, at the end of his bed, his feet, which is very, you know, kind of normal in this situation to do. But uncovering his feet, perhaps just, you know, letting him kind of wake up in the middle of the night. It gets a little bit cold, right? You, you know, it's like having cold feet when you're trying to sleep. So Boaz is sitting there Cold feet now, better to have cold feet now than, you know, before the, the wedding, right? And so he's got cold feet, but it, it, it wakes him up. And he kind of, it's dark out, he doesn't see it, and he's startled because there's a woman sitting at the end of his bed. I mean, that's, you know, that's like for some men, it's like a dream. He's thinking, this is what's going on here. But there's this woman there, he doesn't know who it is, and he calls out and Ruth begins to talk to him. And, and, and basically, you know what Ruth is doing here? She's kind of proposing to Boaz. She's basically saying, will you marry me? To, to say there in, in, at the end of verse nine, take your maidservant under your wing for your close relative. She's basically saying, listen, you're the man for me. You're my kinsman redeemer. 
I'm a widow, I'm childless. I need somebody to come and be joined to me. Take me under your wing. That's basically that proposal right there. And so Boaz is just, you know, in awe of this. And understand, he, Boaz, we, we begin to see why he was maybe moving a little slowly on all this to begin with. Maybe he didn't know right away what was the situation and the, the relationship there. But he's also thinking with Ruth why he hasn't made any kind of move with her is because he thought he was just out of the running. He didn't give himself a chance. Because what did he say? Oh my goodness, you've been so good. You've been show more kindness at the end because you didn't go after young men, whether poor or rich. I mean, Boaz is a lot older. He's the brother of Elimelech, Naomi's former husband, right? And so he's a lot older and he thought, Ruth isn't gonna be interested in me. She's surely gonna go after one of the younger guys, but she doesn't. And so Boaz is just kind of in all this, in, in awe of this. But there's another problem, like we read there at the end. There's a relative even closer than Boaz. And so he has first rights of refusal or first rights of acceptance, I guess you could say here. Boaz has to make sure that this other closer relative doesn't want to step in and marry Ruth. So Boaz tells Ruth to hold tight. He blesses her, then sends her off and, and, and blesses her again as she leaves and then he makes his way to go see this other relative. And that's where chapter four comes in now. And we begin to see this, this meeting between the two. Look at chapter four, verse one. And there we read, if I can turn my page here. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friends, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, the gate of a city, of course, as many of you know, that was a place where the elders and the honored of the city, they would sit, they would conduct their, their business. This is where um, court was held. And so it's interesting now that Boaz comes and he gathers the elders there and, and as his close relative comes by, he just calls out, come aside, friend, right? Now, again, God's just orchestrating all this, bringing this man by this time. But it's interesting how Boaz says Come aside, friend. That word for friend is an odd Hebrew word meaning so-and-so. He's just kind of saying, hey, hey, you, hey, so-and-so, come on over. And yet, this is a relative, Boaz. You know who this person is. He obviously knew his name, but, but as we'll see, because this man is not gonna take Ruth and extend her family name, his name is, in a sense, not gonna be recorded or remembered. So as they chat, and Boaz gives him the context of the story. Well, this man is ready to step in and, and redeem the property, but then when he hears there's a widow that comes along with the property, he backs out. Now, it could be for different reasons, maybe his own family, and he doesn't, he's not able to, to do this because of his own you know, children or, or wife. What, whatever the case, he, he backs away. And then verse five, Boaz said, on the day you buy the fields from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So that's the transaction that takes place. And then in verse seven, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I've acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. So this custom, you know, taking out the sandal, giving it, that was laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses five to 10, kind of really show all this. Only it said there that if this man stood firm, in not taking the woman as his wife. Well, that widow, that woman that he kind of you know, refused, she would come, she would remove his sandal and then she would spit in his face. Great custom, right? 
And then it says, from that day on, this man would be known as the man um, uh, from the house of no sound, something like that. It was something to do with not having a sandal any longer. Well, this man was spared some humiliation because Ruth isn't there on the scene here. He's not having to wipe any saliva off of his faith, uh, face, thankfully here. But now we see that this transaction is, is taking place and Ruth and Boaz are now together officially and legally. They are now husband and wife. All right, verse 13 So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may you, or may he be to you, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. I love that. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child, and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, this is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now remember Naomi, she returned to Israel empty, bitter. That's what she said herself. I'm, my name is Mara now. I'm bitter, I've come back to this land empty. But now she is full of Uh, She's full and she's fruitful. She never turned from the Lord and he was faithful to bless her now. And this child is gonna just breathe fresh life into Naomi that will be nourishing to her. That's that's what what Ruth said to her in verse 15. May he be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. May he just come and provide for you that comfort and joy. You know, we have a great responsibility in raising kids and it can be draining, but it can also be very nourishing to us. If we look at it as our number one ministry, seeking to raise them so that they can be those that are serving the Lord in their later years. And, and interestingly, Obed, this name that, this child that they have, Obed, his very name means serving. And that's what we're all called to do. Train up our kids to be those that just love the Lord, desire to serve him. And that becomes just such a, a blessing to us, nourishing, feeding us as we minister unto our kids. Now, verse 18, to the end of the chapter here, just kind of gives us this sort of tie-in. And says in verse 18, now this is the genealogy of, of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So that brings us now to where we're going to pick things up in 1 Samuel next week. Because we leave the book of Judges behind this day when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes and what they needed was somebody to lead them. Somebody to lead them. And this is where Ruth's story comes in because this becomes the, the pivotal point to bring us to David. So the book closes giving us this line of David and David will be the hope Israel has been looking for. But ultimately, Again, it's pointing us to the greater than David, to Jesus Christ, the son of David, as he'd be referred to. God used quite the family line, didn't he, to bring us to the Messiah. Salmon, it says, begot Boaz. And it tells us in Matthew's gospel that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Remember Rahab? The harlot? The land of Canaan? Who became that spy? Not only did Boaz marry a Gentile, but he was born to a a Gentile. But I'm glad God chose things this way. That in in that family line of Jesus, we've got people like Rahab, Ruth, a Moabite, marrying Boaz. That in, in that family line, we got all these people. Why is that so good? Because it gives us hope, right? that we're not out of place, no matter how much you may feel it. Oh, I don't belong in that company. Oh no, look at some of that company. You, you fit right in, right? And it gives us hope. It gives us comfort to know that God does his work despite, you know, who these people are. He shows grace, right, in all that. And if he did this great work through a line of people like that, well, he can do the same through you and through me.
I love that. Well, listen, in closing, it's not difficult to see the parallel between the work of Boaz and the work of Christ. We, like Ruth, sat under the curse. Her curse was that she had no husband, no children. Boaz, like Christ, out of love, redeemed her. Jesus redeems us out from under the curse. And it's illustrated by this parable. This whole story of Ruth is really illustrated by that parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's what Jesus did for us. We were that treasure sitting in that field, and Jesus came and he gave up all so that he could buy that field, redeem us back from this world, from the grip of this world here. So Jesus becomes that, that redeemer for us that by his grace saves us, delivers us, gives us life, gives us a future and a hope in him. And that hope just continues on now as we see the line that comes from, from Boaz and from Ruth leading us to David and then leading us to our greater than David, Jesus Christ. So that's the book of Ruth, a great love story there, a great piece of of literature. There are, are many lessons that we learned from this wonderful book. First of all, no matter how difficult the situation may be, if we surrender to the Lord and obey him, he will see us through. Secondly, no person is so far outside the reach of God's grace that he or she cannot be saved. Ruth had everything against her, but the Lord came and saved her. Thirdly, God providentially guides those who want to obey him and serve others. Because Ruth was concerned for Naomi, God led her and brought her into a life of happiness. Fourthly, it does no good to get angry at God and blame him for our mistakes. God used Ruth to lead Naomi out of despair and into his blessing. Fifthly, there are no small decisions with God. Ruth's decision to glean in the fields led to her becoming an ancestress of King David and of the Messiah. Sixthly, it is wise to wait on the Lord and let him work out his loving purposes. Isaiah 20, 16 says, the, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. After we've done all that we can do, we must trust the Lord to do the rest, and he will never fail us. Amen? Yeah. Book of Ruth. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you right now, and, and what a great book this is that you've given to us, this great story that really illustrates for us the work that you've done toward us, your bride, the church. How you came and paid the ultimate price to set us free, deliver us, to do the work that we can do ourselves. And so we thank you, Lord, today. We praise you. We acknowledge, Lord, how much we are so in, indebted to you and, and grateful for all that you've done. And may we continue to live these lives in a way that just honor you, that we'd be those that are led of you and, and used of you, God. You saved us and delivered us so that you will continue on just working in us and through us to accomplish your purposes. So may we take such delight and joy in doing just that. So lead us on from here, Lord. May we carry out these truths and apply them into our lives now. We pray in your name. Amen.